0: On September 12, 2001, after the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, the Maasai people of Kenya attempted to send America 14 cows. It may seem like an odd thing to do in a time of tragedy, but cows are the sacred symbol of life for the Maasai people. Camille Nioma who came up with the idea, explained that cows were chosen because to heal a sorrowing heart, one must give something that is dear to them. The cows were accepted on behalf of the American people, but only in spirit. U.S. officials agreed that it would be best if the America just owned the cows while Maasai herdsmen cared for them in Kenya to avoid some obvious logistical issues. The Maasai's gift of cows is just one example of the way people around the world responded generously and compassionately when our nation was traumatized by violence. Everyone remembers 9-11, but I remember 9-12 more. The collective sorrow we felt, that powerful euphoria and connection, the deep, Solidarity we felt with the victims and their families, the intense sense of belonging to something greater than ourselves, the shared quest for healing, that transcended race and sex, class, creed, or religion. In the words of the rock band U2, it was one love in America, one life. We knew we were one, but we were not the same, and we got the chance to carry each other. Sadly, in the months and years after 9-11, we lost that sense of oneness. It mutated into something rather ugly. Our grief turned from collective sorrow and euphoria to anger and vengeance. Racial profiling and hate crimes against Sikhs and Muslims skyrocketed. We entered the longest two wars in American history in Afghanistan and Iraq. We scapegoated immigrants. We experienced a rise in extremist groups. In the 21 years since 9-11, our collective dream of belonging morphed into a nightmare of division and devastation. We lost that oneness, that shared sorrow and solidarity, and our nation was transformed. Yet regardless of how radically things changed, I still remember what it felt like on 9-12. I bet you can too if you think about it. And that means that the dream of true belonging is not dead. It remains an eternal possibility that can be resurrected if we're willing to work to manifest it and embody it together. In the years since 9-11 and the pandemic, if that experience has taught us anything, it is the crucial importance of belonging to our health and wellness and human flourishing One of our members, Dr. Anita Blanchard, studies a concept called entitativity. It's a big word, but it it really means the factors that make a group a group. And I asked her recently about the concept of belonging, and she said there's now research that shows us our human need for belonging is so fundamental to our mental and physical health that it is now seen as, through research, as fundamental as eating. We need to belong as much as we need food to eat, to survive. What defines a group of people, she said, is the quality of the interactions that they have. Not just interactions. It's the difference between people standing near each other at a bus stop or on a subway who are all looking down at their phones. You've seen it. And the same people sitting around a table, laughing, eating, telling stories. Dr. Blanchard said that being a part of a community is different and more important than just being in a group because community is an elevated experience of knowing that we belong, knowing that we're part of a collective where we're accepted as unique individuals and where we accept others the same way where we help others on their journey and, well, other people help us. That is what it means to be a community, to experience that deep sense of belonging to one another. Myers Park Baptist Church exists today because a certain group of people became possessed of a dream. It's the title of our history book, a story of people possessed by a dream of a different kind of church, a truly free congregation with its own unique liturgy and free pulpit where questions were welcomed, and no one was forced to adopt a rigid set of beliefs, where people of all denominations could worship together in ecumenical harmony with innovative forms of education, a welcoming community that is open to all and closed to none, free from the the rigorous barbarism, it says in our history, that characterized so much of religion in the South, and still does. And then these dreamers went out and found a minister named George Heaton, who was also possessed by that same dream. And I feel an affinity with Dr. Heaton, who was from the place where I was born, Lynchburg, Virginia. And he loved to preach about the dream that possessed him and the people of this church that founded this place He preached about it on his first Sunday in the pulpit and his last Sunday in the pulpit and on every year on the second Sunday in September and on a Sunday in 1951 after this sanctuary was completed, Dr. Heaton looked out over the congregation and said, this dream of our church, it doesn't belong to me, it doesn't belong to you. It's God's dream, God's rearrangement of all of our lives and if we are possessed of it, he said. We shall always be moved by that dream so that there is no place where we stop to fashion in permanent form something which must forever change. He said, when we become possessed of a dream, when we became possessed of this dream, we did not dream of a church edifice, a structure, an institution, a program, or an organization. He said, when we dreamed, we dreamed of what God might do to us in bringing into actuality our unique, unprecedented, never-recurring potentialities. Now, almost 80 years since our founding, I believe the best way to summarize what our church has been possessed by for eight decades is the dream of belonging. For the people who founded and fashioned and formed this church, as well as those who who find their way to us today, one thing is for sure. There is a kind of community, a kind of being in a group that is insufficient and unacceptable that is not enough for us. Any inauthentic form of community simply will not work. It's not enough to be free. It's necessary, but not enough to be free. It's necessary, but not enough to be welcomed. It's necessary, but not enough to be included. It's necessary, but not enough to be affirmed. The dream we are possessed by at this church goes beyond acceptance. It's the dream of true belonging. Many of us came to this place from families and churches and communities where we were told we did not belong. Churches filled with refugees from all denominations and affiliations and traditions, outcasts from the narrow American religious landscape, united now together on a journey toward belonging. I cannot think of, I cannot help but think of this statistic that was recently shared with me by one of our members, Claudette Green. She told our staff in a training, 40% of homeless youth in America today are LGBTQ. 40% of homeless youth cast out, likely, by their families. When we learned this, it made our hearts sink, not only for their loss of housing and security, but the loss of belonging, belonging. And those of us who are outcasts and refugees from family or church or nation or religious tradition, we're always tempted to come into church and to look at the story like the prodigal son today in this famous parable and see ourselves as the prodigal in this story of alienation and belonging. The more I read this parable now, many years I've preached on this text so many times, The more I read this parable, the more I think that it's our shame that causes us to identify with the prodigal. The prodigal son was not an innocent child, cast out of his home by callous parents, forced to wander. That's not the picture Jesus paints of his role or his actions in the family. The son got up one morning and decided to intentionally hurt his father. That's what this story begins with. He said, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me after you're dead, which was an insult of the highest magnitude. There's a, a Lebanese scholar named Kenneth Bailey, an expert on first century Middle Eastern customs who describes how over the years he's gone around Palestine to hundreds of people and asked them, do you know of anyone, any son who has ever made this request of their father? The answer is always no. Bailey claims that in all of his research, he could not find a single example in all of Middle Eastern literature or life currently where a son ever asked for an inheritance from a father who was alive and in good health. Never. Scholars teach us that what the son basically said to his father is, drop dead and go to hell, Dad. I want nothing to do with you my brother, or the rest of this family. Give me what's mine so I can get out of here and never see you again. The son's words would not only have broken the father's heart, but completely torn open the family. And it would have become a humiliating source of shame for this father in the community. He couldn't have gone anywhere without anyone knowing what his son did to him. Can you imagine the pain, being insulted, dismissed, cursed to die in this way by someone you love? Some of you actually know this pain quite intimately. And some who carry this pain are often forced to carry it alone, with no one knowing your burden. Jesus' story is so radical because he offered an example of an impossible scenario, an insult so incredible that people in the first century who were listening to this story had never seen it or even imagined it was possible. It was outlandish and preposterous. When the younger son told his father to drop dead and give me what's mine, the father said, okay, okay. No son would ever ask it. No father would ever grant it. We tend to focus on the end of this story. It's a beautiful ending, powerful ending. But it's difficult to imagine a more dramatic illustration of love than the opening scene. A love that offers the freedom to be rejected. A love so strong it doesn't require reciprocation. That's what we mean by unconditional love, agape, a love that asks for nothing in return. One of the most profound spiritual questions I've ever wrestled with came from a scholar named Ellen Davis who once wrote that God asks us all throughout our lives, can you love what you cannot control? Can you love what you cannot control? Can you love those who will hurt you? Can you love people who cannot or will not love you back? This is the love from which the mysteries of things like grace and forgiveness are born. Now, I'm not saying that love requires us to subject ourselves to constant harm. Love does not require us to stay in the same home with abusive spouses or abusive parents. Love does not require us to remain in relationship with people who continue to hurt us, no. But the same is true. No, there can be no community without grace. No sense of belonging without forgiveness. Families, communities, churches, we're all, those are all things that are made of human beings. And human beings hurt each other. It is 100% inevitable. Which is why our covenant... So famously says, we will accept controversy as a reality of life together and an opportunity for growth toward maturity. We know that hurt and pain and conflict will occur, but our covenant also says, by God's grace, we are experiencing love through Christ and the community of the faithful. Grace and love in community. We are called to be a community of forgiveness. And for that reason, I believe the most courageous way to read this story, if you're brave enough, it's to see yourself as the Father, all of us, to see ourselves as the Father. It's a cop out for us to say, oh, you know, the Father, I've been told the Father is God in this story. The Father's God, and only God could really love people like that. Only God could really forgive someone who said something so horrible, did something so horrible. Only God could do that. That's baloney. If we have ever been hurt by anyone in our family, in our church, in our community, then we are the Father. And belonging requires we not only learn how to receive forgiveness, but how to offer forgiveness to those who've hurt us as well. Things happen to relationships over time that cannot be prevented. People hurt each other. Rifts open up between us. The pain caused by these gaps inhibits and limits our experience of true belonging. We need belonging like we need food. And when our family or our our country fails to provide us with true belonging, the church is supposed to be a place that is there for us. There are four levels of belonging that a church community provides us. A belonging to ourselves, a belonging to God, belonging to a place, and belonging to a people, to each other. If even one of these areas of belonging is shaken, the others begin to fade away as well. And as the story of the prodigal shows us, there is only way, one way to bring this all back, and that is through grace and forgiveness. Coming on the heels of a pandemic where so much has been lost, including our sense of belonging to people, to place, to God, to ourselves, I have become convinced that grace and forgiveness is the only way to rebuild community. What might it look like for us to be like the Father in this story and offer that gift of revolutionary love to each other? There's a song by the British singer Adele. has these amazing lyrics pouring out her heart saying, go easy on me. Go easy on me. I didn't get the chance to feel the world around me. I had no time to choose what I chose to do. I had good intentions and the highest hopes, but right now I know that probably doesn't even show, so go easy on me, the song says, over and over again. What if we went easy on each other for a change? That's something we've lost as a people since 9-11, isn't it? What if we were easy on each other and hard on systems, as John Powell said, easy on each other, instead of easy on systems and hard on each other, which is how we are now. As we head into a new church here, there is grace and forgiveness in the air around us in this space. It feels like the time has come for all of us to sing at this new year mark. Let all acquaintance be for God. Let bygones be bygones. Try to move forward together with a clean slate and a fresh start. Our church and our world need more from us than our hurt and our pain, our grievances and our regrets. The world is desperate for the belonging that we can provide. It needs our love, our ingenuity, our passion. So let me be the first to say, if I have ever hurt you or someone you love, I am sorry. I am sorry. I apologize. I ask for your forgiveness And if you have ever hurt me, or someone I love, I forgive you. You are beloved. A priest named Vincent Donovan lived with the Maasai people for 17 years. He learned their customs, he fell in love with them. And in his time there, he discovered that because cows are sacred, and live off the land that the Maasai also believe that grass is sacred too, vital, a holy sign of life and love and respect and peace. And so they have this practice that when arguments arise in the community, the Maasai pass a tuft of grass from one person to another throughout the village as a sign of peace and forgiveness. This is a an act to assure that no violence will erupt between them. No Maasai would ever think to violate this practice of passing the grass to one another. It is sacred. It's not just a sign. It's an embodiment of their unity that maintains the peace of the village that they have. And whenever this grass is passed successfully, it doesn't happen all the time, because people get angry with each other, people hurt each other. It doesn't always get passed through the village every time, but when it does pass successfully from one person to another through the entire community, the Masai hold a grand celebration. They gather around a fire for a feast filled with music and singing, dancing. And Donovan was able to join in this ritual during those 17 years a few times when the the grass was passed thoroughly through the community, and what he came to see is that they were celebrating communion. The grass being offered was their passing of peace. The celebration that commenced when it was successfully completed was the Lord's Supper. The Masai were perfectly embodying God's dream of belonging, a dream of peace that can only come through grace and forgiveness. Jesus said, when you come to the altar, if you remember anyone has something against you, leave your gift and go and be reconciled first. To celebrate communion is to become community together, to belong to each other. This is the dream our founders cast and our children will inherit. This is the dream that we have been possessed by for 80 years and will animate our future. This is the dream everyone is longing for. And if we are brave enough to be like the Father, it will be the gift that we have to offer the world. We belong to each other. There's no way around it. It's an amazing reality and a crazy responsibility. But if the belonging we experience in church was so deep that it became as essential for us as food, can you imagine there would be no declining attendance, no budget shortfalls, no problem, only grace, only love. Dorothy Day once wrote, we have all known the long loneliness and learned that the only solution is love, and love comes with community. Yes. We must put the long loneliness behind us to find the kind of belonging we're dreaming of and that God is dreaming for us. But first, we have to run out to those who've hurt us, like the Father, with open arms. Offer our embrace and say, welcome home. Here's my robe. Here's my ring. Here's my sandals. Let's share the sacred cow together. Let's eat and celebrate together. Let's dream tomorrow's dream. For what was lost can always be found. Amen.